Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Hey, here's good news for amateurs. YouTube is experimenting with software that generates music using an AI, AI artificial intelligence model called Lyria, built by Google DeepMind. The Google-owned home video giant announced this week it's pushing out to a small group of testers the Music AI tool, which allows folks, particularly those without any or many instruments, to transform an audio clip such as a chord or someone humming a tune <laughs> into something that retains the original sound but played in the form of an instrument. Or another instrument. YouTube is only sharing music AI tool with select artists, songwriters, and producers that are part of its music AI incubator program right now. So amateurs have to wait. Music AI tool allows people to create music in new forms without having to know how to sing or play musical instruments particularly well. Much like, before you object, much like how anyone can use text-to-image models to generate artwork without having to know how to draw or paint. And soon, surgery without having to know how to make an incision. Quote, these experiments explore the potential of AI features to help artists and creators stretch their imaginations and augment their creative processes. That's from YouTube's Lior Cohn, used to be a music executive, and uh, Tony Reed, vice president of emerging experiences and community products. Quote, quoting them again, and in turn fans will be able to connect to the creatives they love in new ways, bringing them closer together through interactive tools and experiences. All of this will help us iterate and enhance the technology, informing applications for the future, unquote. AI uh, music is uh, particularly tricky, says the British tech journal The Register. Not only is it difficult to build models capable of creating audio that actually sounds good, <laughs> why bother? But securing the data to train the systems is difficult. Record labels are notoriously litigious when it comes to protecting their copyrights. As YouTube knows very well. The uh, site says it's working around these issues and is trying to enter licensing agreements to compensate artists for their music. Despite the tremendous opportunity AI presents, we also recognize it's a quickly evolving space that presents complex challenges, say the uh, two executives at YouTube. One of YouTube's greatest strengths is our strong relationships with music industry partners. That means record companies. We're, uh, we are committed to collaborating with them as we enter this new era. Developing sensible and sustainable controls, monetization, and attribution frameworks, unquote. Meanwhile, researchers at Google DeepMind are tackling the problem of fake AI-generated audio, as <laughs> opposed to the real one, I guess, that could be used to manipulate or mislead listeners. Tracks created using its Lyria model 
will carry imperceptible watermarks from its SynthID tool that's used to identify synthetic content. Well, if it's imperceptible, SynthID apparently works by converting audio data into a two-dimensional spectrogram, applying a digital watermark to that representation and converting it back to audio. Well, you won't be able to tell. The watermark, quoting here, is designed to maintain detectability even when the audio content undergoes many common modifications, such as noise additions, MP3 compression, or speeding up and slowing down the track. Synth ID can also detect the presence of a watermark throughout a track to help determine if parts of a song were generated by Lyria. That was explained by DeepMind. <laughs> yes, it's a crude computer-generated explanation of a computer-generated technique. Any questions? Hello, welcome to the show.
From New Orleans, Louisiana, I'm Harry Shearer. Welcome you to this edition of the show. And now... We've got the ultra-modern knack Of getting oil from the deepest crack So give the boys just a bit of slack And say a hearty what the frack Dayline Columbus, Ohio Some state parks in Ohio can be fracked. That's a decision made by a government commission this week, despite all of the obvious things, plus an ongoing investigation into oil and gas companies claiming possible fraudulent support. Why would they do that? During a raucous meeting attended by many fracking opponents, the Ohio Oil and Gas Land Management Commission, that makes more sense than the Railroad Commission, okayed several parcels for fracking by outside entities, all of them owned by the Ohio Department of Natural Resources and the Ohio Department of Transportation. And the parcels include state parks and designated wildlife areas. Guess the uh, wildlife didn't have an attorney at the hearing. Under state law, the identities of those who nominated the land for oil and gas drilling are confidential. The vote took place during a tense public meeting at which anti-fracking protesters held up signs that read, Save Our Parks. Advocates accused the state board members of lacking transparency, upholding the interests of corporate greed, <laughs> no, and poisoning future generations. Some threw money in front of the commissioners and shouted them out of the state meeting. Others sang protest songs and chanted, Don't frack our futures. The decision is first of its kind in Ohio. Although laws allowing fracking have been on the books since 2011. Under then-Governor John Kasich, legislation called for a state board to allow state-owned land to be leased for the exploration and development and production of oil or natural gas. But the formation of the commission was not formalized during Kasich's administration. Its first meeting didn't occur until December last year, after current GOP Governor Mike DeWine signed another bill similar to the 2011 uh, legislation. Commission Chair Ryan Richardson emphasized in a previous meeting that according to the language in the nominated leases, no surface areas of the parks would be disturbed by oil and gas drilling because it would occur underground. However, most of the meeting this week was merely impossible to hear over the booze and chants of environmental advocates in the room. Oil and gas fracking, as you know by now, is often a polarizing topic, but ongoing accusations of fraudulent support in Ohio have uh, added even more tension to the vote. Uh, Cleveland.com, yes, it does exist. Investigation in September found that over 100 Ohio residents said their names were attached to form letters sent to the commission in a public no a comment period without their knowledge, all of them urging that state parks allow fracking. Those names 
included a nine-year-old girl and a blind woman. The form letter, which appears over 1,000 times in the public comment database, urged Ohio to, quote, responsibly, unquote, lease rights to minerals under Salt Fork State Park and other areas. The uh, nine-year-old's mother told Cleveland.com that her daughter knows nothing about oil and gas exploration and neither of them have ever visited Salt Fork State Park. The letters could be traced back to multiple oil support entities, including Consumer Energy Alliance, a Texas-based oil and gas organization. The uh, Energy Alliance has denied collecting names without permission and has called Cleveland.com's coverage libelous. The nonprofit collects and verifies those names and other demographic data through a third party. Citing their contract, the energy group says they can't reveal who the third party is or the data they collected. It isn't the first time the alliance has come under fire for using residents' names in government petitions and public comments without their knowledge. The group has been accused of the same issue in Wisconsin in 2014, Ohio in 2016, and South Carolina in 2018. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost, a Republican, said a couple months ago he would investigate any possible crimes committed through the use of the letters. A spokesperson for the Attorney General, Bethany McCorkle, told the AP this week that, quote, this is still an open investigation. There are not any additional details that can be shared at this time. Unquote. Fracking in state parks, ladies and gentlemen. Bring the kids. And now... Well, you might think that bees have uh, highly developed senses, like smell, but new research from the University of Oxford reveals that bumblebees can't taste pesticides present in nectar, even if it's at lethal concentrations. This means bumblebees are not able to avoid contaminated nectar putting them at risk, high risk of pesticide exposure and posing a threat to crop pollination. Bees, as you know, are important pollinators of agricultural crops, but this can expose them to pesticides while they collect nectar and pollen, some of which are very toxic to bees. Bees are known to be adept at tasting and differentiating sugary solutions. Certain toxic compounds like quinine taste bitter to bees, so the researchers sought to find out whether this sense of taste could help them avoid drinking pesticides. The uh, research folks used two methods to test whether bumblebees, Bombus terrestris to you, could taste neonicotinoid and sulfoxamine pesticides in nectar, and if they would avoid drinking pesticides over a very broad range of concentrations. They used electrophysiology to record the responses 
of the neurons in taste sensilia, taste buds to you and me, on bumblebees' mouth parts. This allowed them to track how often neurons fired and therefore the strength of response to the taste. The researchers also tested the bumblebees' feeding behavior by offering them either sugar solutions or pesticide-laced sugar solutions to feed on. Results demonstrated the responses of the neurons were the same whether the bees drank sugar solution or sugar-containing pesticides. This indicates the bumblebees' mouth parts never encountered that word before, do not have mechanisms to detect and avoid common pesticides in nectar. In behavior experiments, the bees consumed the same amount of food regardless of whether the solution contained pesticides or not. Not too smart are the bees. This was even the case when the pesticides were present at concentrations high enough to make the bees very ill. Ditto. The findings are important because they show uh, bumblebees cannot avoid pesticide exposure using their sense of taste. The lead author says, as bumblebees cannot taste pesticides and don't experience negative consequences from drinking them immediately, they likely would not be able to avoid consuming nectar contaminated with pesticides in the field. Unquote. So, message to bumblebees, stay out of the field. Next, some good news. News of the warm, that is. Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen. New research published this week in Science Advances, a leading international journal, paints an uncharacteristically upbeat picture for the planet. This is because more realistic ecological modeling suggests the world's plants may be able to take up more CO2 from human activities that ends up in the atmosphere than previously predicted. This comes out of Trinity College, Trinity College, Dublin. Despite this headline finding, the environmental scientists behind the research are quick to underline this should in no way be taken to mean the world's governments can take their foot off the brake in their obligations to reduce carbon dioxide emissions as quickly as possible. Simply planting more trees and protecting existing vegetation is not a silver bullet solution. Research does underline the multiple benefits to conserving such vegetation. Quote, plants take up a substantial amount of carbon dioxide every year, thereby slowing down the detrimental effects of climate change. But the extent to which they will continue the CO2 uptake into the future has been uncertain, explains the head of the research team, Dr. Jürgen Nauer. This is at Western Sydney University. That's in Sydney, the western side. Quote, we accounted for aspects like how efficiently carbon dioxide can move through the interior of the leaf, how plants adjust to changes in temperatures, and how plants most economically distribute nutrients in their canopy. These are three really important mechanisms that affect a plant's ability to fix carbon. Photosynthesis, the way plants convert CO2 into the sugars 
they use for growth and metabolism, yet they're commonly ignored in most global models, said Dr. Nauer. The beneficial effect of climate change on vegetation carbon uptake might not last forever. It's long been unclear how vegetation will respond to climate change differences in rainfall and temperature significantly different from what's observed today. In the study published this week, Nauer and colleagues present results from their study set to assess a high-emission climate scenario. The authors tested different versions of the model. The results were clear. The more complex models that incorporated more of our current plant physiological understanding consistently projected stronger increases of vegetation carbon uptake globally. The process accounted for reinforce each other so that effects were even stronger when accounted for in combination, which, of course, is what would happen in a real-world scenario. Assuming there is a real world. Said one of the researchers, it is likely that we are currently underestimating climate change effects on vegetation as well as its resilience to changes in climate. We often think about climate models as being all about physics, but biology plays a huge role, and it's something we really need to account for. However, simply planting trees will not solve our problems. We absolutely need to cut down emissions from all sectors, Trees alone cannot offer humanity a get-out-of-jail-free card. They can help print them up, though, if they're converted to paper. News of the war. And now... Well, I didn't know this. Tesla had threatened to sue... People who buy the Cybertruck, which of course has not been on, put on sale yet, three years after Elon Musk said it would be, but uh, it threatens to sue Cybertruck buyers who resell their vehicles within a year. Now the language has been removed from the automaker's terms and conditions just days after it appeared. This is from the Register, the British Tech Journal. Tesla's motor vehicle order agreement terms and conditions were updated recently to add a section that specified Cybertruck buyers had to hang on to their vehicles for a year before trying to resell. A new version spotted this week is identical except for that Cybertruck language. Tesla reserved the right under the old language, to repurchase the vehicle at a discounted price. And if a resale went ahead without the blessing of the company, considerable penalties were possible. Among the threats, a legal injunction, a $50,000 fine, (laughs) and being banned from buying another Tesla in the future. The only justification given by Tesla in this restrictions was the limited availability of the vehicle. Porsche has implemented similar restrictions on reselling their limited-run vehicles, but the German automaker's penalties ended not allowing flippers to reserve future vehicles. 
The Cybertruck now appears to not have those restrictions, at least not in the form Tesla first imposed. It's not clear if Tesla will otherwise restrict resale or if future updates to the terms of service will appear before the truck supposedly goes on sale later this month. Meantime, at another Musk Enterprise, X, IBM has paused advertising on X, X minus IBM, you could say, after reports emerged that its ads had been served alongside anti-Semitic content on the former Twitter. Quote, IBM has zero tolerance for hate speech and discrimination. We have immediately suspended all advertising on X while we investigate this entirely unacceptable situation, according to IBM. Appears to have been triggered by a report from Media Matters that found ads from IBM as well as Apple, Oracle, Xfinity, and Bravo next to supposedly pro-Nazi content. It's unclear whether the other companies have also paused advertising. European Commission has reportedly also paused advertising on X, according to internal documents viewed by Politico. The Media Matters report and IBM ad pause comes a day after Elon Musk responded to an X user promoting the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory. Not going to go into the details of that, but Musk's reply was, You have said the actual truth. He said in reply to a poster who said, Jewish communities have pushed, quote, dialectical hatred against whites. The uh, relatively new executive at X, Linda Yaccarino, I said Linda Yaccarino, went into damage control mode on X, insisting that anti-Semitism and discrimination has no place, quote, anywhere in the world. It's ugly and wrong, full stop. X's point of view, she says, has always been very clear that discrimination by everyone should stop across the board. I think that's something we can and should all agree on. X said it did a sweep of the accounts Media Matters found anti-Semitic content on, quote, and they will no longer be monetizable, and the specific posts will be labeled sensitive media. Not removed, but sensitive. You don't want to speak badly about them. They're, you know, easily hurt. X's advertising revenue has been suffering since Musk purchased Twitter in uh, October of last year. Ad revenue shrank considerably in the wake of Musk's acquisition. Brand safety concerns, that is, advertisers worried about what abuts their ads, arose and major advertisers began to flee the platform. While many have reportedly returned, their spending on X is said to be minuscule compared to what it was in the pre-Musk days. Meanwhile, the banks who funded Musk's acquisition of Twitter are getting antsy. More fleeing advertisers means more lost revenue and more likelihood that the bonds held by the financers cannot be sold. Musk has placed the blame on groups like 
the Anti-Defamation League, which he threatened to sue a couple months ago. There's your musk love right there. From New Orleans, this is Le Show. Now some uh, news of Nice Corp. Nice people doing nice things. Conservative media mogul Rupert Murdoch this week pledged to maintain an active role, his words, in the business as he handed control of his global empire to son Lachlan. Here, you run it. I'll be right over here. This is amid 
Questions about how Fox News will handle next year's presidential election? Questions? I think I know the answers. This uh, item from Agence France Presse. After decades running a sprawling news operation in Australia, Britain, and the United States, Rupert, Rupert, 92-year-old Rupert, officially became chairman emeritus at Nice Corp at a shareholders meeting. His uh, son, Lachlan, believed to share his father's conservative leanings, unlike the other son, James. Uh, Lachlan will be uh, running Fox Corp. But Rupert made it clear he was not disappearing entirely from the media scene. Quote, I hope to continue, pardon me, I hope to continue an active role in the company, he told shareholders, saying that Lachlan will now be the company's sole chair. Sole chair! He'd already told Fox employees when the transition was announced in September that he would still watch broadcasts, quote, with a critical eye and that they could expect to sometimes see him in their offices late on a Friday afternoon. Meantime, how they're going to handle the uh, election, or the, the next year's campaigns and election? A clue comes from Charissa uh, Thompson of Fox Sports. She garnered criticism this week when a clip went viral in which she admitted to inventing quotes from coaches while working as a sideline reporter. Quote, I've said this before, so I haven't been fired for saying it, but I'll say it again. I would make up the report sometimes, Thompson said in a recent interview, because A, the coach wouldn't come out at halftime, or it was too late, and I didn't want to screw up the report, so I was like, I'm just going to make this up. Unquote. Thompson, who's 41, Added she assumed that no coach is going to get mad if she misled viewers into thinking they had simply voiced some well-worn cliches, such as, hey, we need to stop hurting ourselves, we need to be better on third down, we need to stop turning the ball over and do a better job of getting off the field. Like they're not going to correct me on that. So I'm like, it's fine, I'll just make up the report. That's how she's like. 41. Among the sports media members responding to her comments was uh, Molly McGrath of ESPN and ABC, who wrote, quote, Young reporters, this is not normal or ethical. Coaches and players trust us with sensitive information, and if they know that you're dishonest and don't take your role seriously, you've lost all trust and credibility, unquote. CBS sideline reporter Tracy Wolfson wrote on, X Twitter, this is absolutely not okay. I take my job very seriously. I hold myself accountable for all I say. I build trust with coaches and never make something up. I know my uh, uh, fellow reporters do the same, unquote. Kevin Smith, a board member of the Society of Professional Journalists, who helped shape that organization's ethics code, said of uh, the admission by Thompson, quote, this is just appallingly bad journalism to engage in and to brag about it and defend it as harmless is beyond the pale. But she works for Fox. There is no pale. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you may know that uh, a judge had slapped a gag order on... Uh, 
ex-President Trump uh, in one of the many trials he's facing, um, which was designed to stop him from critically attacking the judge, the prosecutor, and or anyone else directly involved in that trial, which he had been doing. Um, a judge then uh, this week paused the gag order for some legal purposes, which means right now Trump, for a period of time ending November 29th, I believe, is ungagged. Great news for the MAGA nation. The totally illegal and lunatic so-called gag order against me is gone. But it won't last forever. Time to go gagless. The ex-president is right. Courts have suspended the so-called gag order. Now you can hear from your favorite president, direct and uncensored. That judge is a whack job from Cuckoo Town. The DA is a corrupt shrimp creature. The jurors are completely brain damaged. The parking lot attendant is a pedo. Gagless is a fully professionally filmed 28-minute session with Donald Trump speaking his mind about his upcoming trials. As illegal as it gets. His enemies. These people hate America. They hate Americans, too, as well as Canada. And everything else. They're putting me on trial because you weren't available. Gagless is a DVD or video download direct from Trump Productions, a completely new corporate entity. No matter what happens in the New York trial, Trump Productions guarantees delivery of Gagless to your home or office before the gag order is reimposed. But you must order now. Send your delivery and credit card information to the address on your screen. If you don't see it, clean your screen. When the gag order is reimposed, you'll have the uncensored Trump at your fingertips, right where he belongs.
just a month before our winter starts, it's still crypto winter. After a tech entrepreneur and investor lost his password for retrieving more than $600,000 in Bitcoin and hired experts to break open the wallet he kept it, they failed to help him. But in the process, they discovered a way to crack enough other software wallets to steal a billion dollars or more. This is from the Washington Post. The team released information about how they did it. They hope it's enough data that the owners of millions of wallets will realize they are at risk and move their money, but not so much data that criminals can figure out how to pull off would be one of the biggest heists of all time. Uh, their startup, the team startup, Unciphered, has worked for months to alert more than a million people that their wallets are at risk. Millions more haven't been told, often because their wallets were created at cryptocurrency websites that have gone out of business. story of those wallets' vulnerabilities underscores the enormous risk in what the Washington Post describes as experimental currencies beyond their wild fluctuations in value and fast-changing regulations. Many wallets were created with code containing profound flaws, and the companies that use that code can, and in many cases have, disappeared. Stefan Thomas, the technologist who created the software used to create the wallets, told the Post he had done so as a hobby and had taken the key part of the code from a program published on a Stanford University student's page, not checking to see if it was sound. Quote, Instead, I was obsessed about making sure I didn't make any mistakes in my own code. I'm sorry to anyone affected by this bug. Unquote. Stephan Thomas. Unciphered is calling the flaw Randstorm because it stems from wallet programs that created cryptographic keys that weren't random enough. Instead of creating electronic keys that were one in a trillion, very hard for an outsider to forge, they made keys that were one in some number of thousands. A randomness factor easily hacked. Cryptographers discovered weaknesses in how most of the major browsers created randomness, which was compounding the problem. In 2014, they improved afterward. Blockchain.info and some other sites also added more randomness, making wallets harder to crack, but that still leaves million of millions of wallets vulnerable. Discovering the vulnerability was only half the challenge on Cypher. Then had to figure out how to tell millions of people to move their funds without giving away the existence of a huge vulnerability. Unfortunately, many of the crypto sites that had used the flawed program were out of business. Unciphered legal advisor Stuart Baker, a former general counsel at the NSA, trying to determine the right thing to do, even broached the idea in a column a year ago of having a white knight steal everything that was vulnerable to a hypothetical crypto flaw and hold on to it while sorting through who truly owned what. No one wanted to risk prosecution or civil liability by stealing some, so many people at once. And in the end, what we decided to do, said the official, quote, was to find the company that was in a position to fix or notify as many people as possible in the hope we could get a lot of this fixed 
before the exact nature of the program leaked. The biggest old user of the wallet program still around was Blockchain.com. The first interaction between the two companies was fraught with suspicion. Each wanted the other side to sign a non-disclosure agreement, but neither would themselves. Quote, you need to be pretty skeptical in crypto of people who call with something that sounds dramatic because there are so many scammers, unquote, Blockchain.com president Lane, Lane Castleman. Quote, it was him unclear who they were and what the scope of it was, unquote. Their references checked out. Baker joined a group called to explain that the unciphered hackers were well-meaning security whizzes, not extortionists. Blockchain.com agreed to help. Consumers can check whether their wallets are vulnerable at www.keybleed.com. Keybleed should tell you everything. And now... News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol III. Paris booksellers who have operated from little dark green kiosks on the banks of the Seine for some 150 years are incensed by plans to remove them for the opening ceremony of the 2024 Olympics. In a test run this week, four of the stands by, were lifted by a crane 10 feet above the ground, drawing consternation and anger from a small group of booksellers gathered nearby. Paris City Hall official Pierre Rabadan told the news conference the exercise went off without a hitch. Quote, today we're sure it can move, that is to say remove and then put back boxes in good conditions in a reasonable time, he said. And Paris police chief Laurent Nunez in a bid to calm outraged book sellers, sellers or bouquinists, stressed that the stands would only be removed when strictly necessary, notably for security reasons. I am aware of the importance of bouquinists as an attraction of the capital, he said. Already struggling to bounce back from shutdowns during COVID and a longer run loss of interest from locals, the booksellers are refusing to miss out on the 16 million tourists expected for the games. It's like a tooth extraction, said Michel Boutard, General Secretary of the Cultural Association of Booksellers. All this for a four-hour ceremony? The Olympic Games have achieved what World Wars I and II have not been able to do to make us disappear, he fumed. Paris's City Hall is planning a spectacular opening ceremony next year, July 26th. First time the opening ceremony has been held outdoors on a stretch of the Seine along the city's most touristy parts. Paris police has ordered the removal of some 600 of the 900 kiosks before the ceremony over security concerns that they could be used to conceal explosive devices during the grand opening. The booksellers used the green boxes to house some 300,000 old books and journals, stamps, and trading cards. They're part of the Paris landscape and a huge tourist attraction. Quote, all this is over the top. We aren't sure they will return, says the president of the Booksellers Association. It is the sole livelihood for many of the 230-odd booksellers whose stalls flank the city's famous left and right banks. What 
says the president of the booksellers. Will they do if they cannot work for several weeks? And the organizers of next year's Olympics have called for vigilance after French security services said they'd uncovered a disinformation campaign coming from Azerbaijan that aimed to undermine the French capital's capacity to hold the event. This from Reuters, the campaign which included pictures and a video showing clashes between French police and protesters that were seen by millions of people, ran with the slogan, Boycott Paris 2024, following riots in Paris at the end of June. And the International Olympic Committee says it had been targeted by fake news posts that it said contained defamatory content, a fake narrative, and false information. That's so wrong, because it's a movement. And we all need one. Every day! Now, just a couple of apologies of the week. Dateline Fukuoka. The organizers of an amateur sake tasting competition have apologized for scoring errors discovered after the event that necessitated changes to the top nine rankings, including revoking the first place prize. The scoring errors occurred at the Japan Sake and Sochu Makers Association's 42nd National Sake Tasting Competition the end of October. The association held an explanatory meeting on November 12th and apologized to those concerned. The organizers reportedly omitted checking the data to focus on getting the event moving after other problems. It plans to apologize directly to the participants whose prizes were canceled and will invite them to the next competition as special guests. In addition, the association will ask the mistaken winners to return their trophies and medals, but not any other prizes. They're going to have a new award ceremony for the right winners in December. And the man accused of attacking former U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband with a hammer apologized this week, echoing right-wing conspiracy theories to explain to jurors that he went to the Pelosi's home as part of a bigger plot to end what he viewed as government corruption. David Dupop spoke for more than an hour in which he tearfully recounted about how his political leanings went from leftist to right-wing after reading a comment on a YouTube video about former President Trump. He said he bludgeoned Paul Pelosi after realizing his larger plan might be unraveling. The Apologies of the Week, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And finally, following up on a story we featured last week, the clash between the use of dams on the Willamette River in Oregon to create clean hydropower, electric power, from the dams, and the ability of salmon in the area to uh, get back to their spawning grounds prevented by the dams. Big public meetings this week held by the Corps of Engineers before they have to report to Congress as to whether hydropower production should be 
removed at some or all of the eight producing dams in its Willamette, Willamette Valley project. Tribal governments and environmental organizations support removing the hydro capacity of the dams, a change they say would help juvenile salmon migrate to the ocean where they become adults and then migrate back upstream to spawn. Under a court order, the Corps is currently draining two reservoirs to exhort lows to help move fish through dams. Most of the dozens of people who commented during the meetings were area residents who want the dams to continue producing energy. No salmon spoke at the hearings. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. Back next week, same time, same radio station, or a time of your choice on the audio device of your choosing. And I'd be most appreciative if you join me then. The email address for this program, chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts, if we still got them, I think way back there somewhere in the warehouse... And uh, a playlist of the music you heard here on and all sorts of stuff to read and watch and ponder. All at harryshearer.com. And um, I don't know why I'm still on what used to be Twitter. show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long from the Crescent City.